Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, good evening and welcome to session 19 in our look at the book of Revelation, where we're taking a look at the fifth and sixth seal of the scroll of redemption. And again, in the outlook that John is given by Jesus Christ himself, we are in the hard prophecy section. We're in that which will come after uh, the church age. And just to kind of uh, be a quick refresher of what we had looked at from the previous sessions, when we're talking about the scroll of redemption, again, it's a scroll with multiple seals, each that has an individual purpose of instruction when you pop and you open a little section, then so forth. But on the back of the scroll, there is written uh, the declaration of who will be entitled to possess the scroll and to read it, not only to take possession of it, but of also what it is entitling the bearer to. So we can tell by, by the fact that it has multiple seals and by the fact that it has something written on the outside that it's a document of legal standing of some kind, usually either a will or a title deed. So in this case, it is the instructions for the redemption process of the earth itself out of the hands of the curse, as we're going to lead uh, to read in chapter 22. It's unsealed to begin the time of the great tribulation. And that happens upon the erecting of the abomination of desolation that is foretold by Christ in, uh, if memory serves, it was Matthew chapter 24. And referenced originally in the book of Daniel with Daniel's 70 weeks. This is again the beginning of the great tribulation period. And at this point in time, the Antichrist has been in power for no less than three and a half years, had made a covenant with the people of Israel to allow temple worship to recommence, and has now gone back on his word by trying to erect himself, or at least an image of himself in the Holy of Holies, which sets all of this off. So before we get any further... Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you this evening, we ask, one, that you would bless these efforts so that not only would they be used by us gathered here, but that as this record is preserved, that they might be an encouragement and instruction to others. Lord, during this, this day in which we live, we ask for not only your wisdom and continued guidance, but for your strength and your conviction. Lord, to maintain with steadfast hearts, the course that you have set before us. Not to be bearers of judgment and hatred, Lord, but to be symbols of hope, of instruction, and of mercy, just as you were to us. So help us to proclaim your gospel boldly through acts of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again... We're going to take a look at several sevens in this book. And among them are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, or in some of your translations, seven vials of wrath. And kind of in the image of Daniel, 
you will have the first six and then there will be a pause that's followed by the seventh. Now we took a look at the first four seals, each of which when opened released a horseman upon the earth. And the instructions given to each one were, in the case of the first one, to overcome uh, what we believe to be overcoming the existing power structures upon the earth. One was tasked with taking peace from the earth. One was tasked with making the necessities of life unaffordable while leaving the luxuries alone. And finally, the only one that's actually named in Scripture, death. And this horse carries two riders, death and hell. So you have the, body, the, the bodily death followed immediately by the spiritual death as well. And his task was to orchestrate the demise of a quarter of the earth's population. And I think I accidentally flip-flopped this uh, particular uh, image last time. I think that I got orange and, or excuse me, fiery red and black flip-flop. So I apologize for that in our last session. But I want you to keep in mind this particular idiom. Once the horsemen begin their work, it is not written in Scripture that they end their work on or by the opening of the next seal. So with the opening of each seal of judgment, a judgment is released upon the earth through the imagery or through the, the work of the horsemen, and it is not mentioned in Scripture that it concludes. So you have conquest, and then you have conquest and war, and then you have conquest and war and famine, and you have conquest and war and famine and death. So moving on to the next Two seals, seal number five and seal number six. The martyrs, the cry of the martyrs, and the judgment upon a fallen nature itself. So as we read, starting with verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live upon the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer. And we're going to see why, because they will come back later on in Scripture. But to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. One of the things that I hope in this series and in our sermon series that you get is that we are not promised that we would live without persecution. If anything, we were promised that it would come. In the United States, as Christians, we have had an unprecedented amount of influence and protection, one that is not a regular occurrence in church history. In fact, we have been the exception. For 2,000 years, we have endured persecution, martyrdom, and death. And it is promised that it would continue. This is one cited example of that promise. So let's talk about the seal itself, the seal of, of the cry of the martyrs. 
Now, I want you to notice this. The Greek word, the, the gospel word for soul is psyche. So when you're talking about psychological therapy, psychotherapy, you're not talking about psycho meaning soul, therapy meaning care of. Literally, you're talking about the care of the soul, the, the imagination, the memory, the personality, everything that you are that is not of the body, which will supersede you after, after death. So the... Uh, the outline of biblical, um, the outline of biblical languages and uh, Strong's dictionary define it both this way: uh, soul meaning to be the breath of life, which is interesting. We see that back in the book of Genesis, and God breathed into his nostrils, and Adam became a living soul. Now, notice that there is a difference between soul and spirit. If you do not have this written down somewhere in your own notes or in the flyleaf of your Bible, I encourage you to do that now. The soul is who you are. It is the immortal you, the you that will exist long after the old mud hut here lies decaying in the ground. The spirit, on the other hand, if you are a Christian, is the indwelling presence of God that has come alongside you at the point of conversion. The regenerate nature being formed with you with a direct, personal, intimate communion with God. A close personal relationship with God. One that transforms us and keeps maneuvering us during that transformation into the likeness of His Son. So when we talk about body, soul, and spirit, we are made in the image of God just as God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are made in His image. So today, in today's time, it has become unpopular by a lot of, of the mainstream denominations to refer to the Trinity of the person in that way because that implies that if you are not a Christian, you are not a complete person. Unfortunately, I have to tell them, yes, you are not a complete person unless you are in possession of the Holy Spirit of God, or rather the Holy Spirit of God is in possession of you. You were designed with that communion in mind. You have a cross-shaped hole in your heart, effectively, that can only be sustained through the ill-indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And the only way to have that type of relationship, to have that type of completeness, is by first having received a sacrifice made on your behalf by Christ. The essence which differs from the body and is not dissolved by death. I like that definition. It's one of the reasons I put it up there. But everything that you are mentally, that's why the term psyche is often used, is not contained within the organ of gray matter up here alone. You are but a dimmed shadow of a heavenly reality. The you that will exist far beyond the death of this body. The question is, in that eternity, where will you spend it? Now going on. The word that we often translate as martyr, matria, literally means testimony or those who bear witness. So when we talk about the martyrs of the faith, we're not just talking about, we have a bad habit like in Fox's Book of Martyrs of talking about those who have perished for the faith. And while that is certainly true, the reason that they had perished were because they were outspoken witnesses to that faith. 
And that witness was what cost them their lives. But it was a cost, I want to let you know, when we're talking about martyrs of the Christian faith especially, that they were willing to pay. When we talk about the Soviet Union and the mass eradication of the Christian populace that happened there outside of a very tightly controlled Orthodox church to the point that there were many of us who were machine gunned on ice sheets, they were martyrs. And they went to their graves singing the hymns of the faith. Never discount the power of that faith. How long, O Lord? That is a common cry that we're here uh, in the Psalms, plus in other places. Anytime the people of God are oppressed, you will hear them making this petition before the throne of grace. How long, O Lord? And this is also an echo, an echo of thy kingdom come. When will your justice, when will your judgment, when will your rule be here? A lot of times when we repeat what we call the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, here as it is in heaven. The prayer is a request for God to make his kingdom here as solid and as much his own as it is where his throne is located. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's also a reflection of what we read in Deuteronomy 32, where God claims that there is life in the blood, and for every time blood is spilled, God himself will demand an accounting of it. Blood is linked in a very ceremonial way with life itself. In fact, the cost of sin is the living blood of the innocent. For the wages of sin is death. However, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness. That's why the Old Testament sacrifices were required. The, the, the slain blood of the innocent was required to pay the price for your sin. That's one of the reasons that we are as reliant on Christ Himself as we are. Because He is the innocent who laid His life down for us to pay that price which we could not. We also hear God declaring that others will join them in their martyrdom. So what else do we see here? Some other truths that we see is that the souls seek justice for themselves. They cry out, Oh Lord, how long before you judge the world? And this is an indicator that hatred within the world will indeed increase. And we see a lot of it going on right now. Not only is there a great falling away, but more and more often sin is abounding all the more. Also, we have a promise here, that uh, a reflection of the promise that intolerance towards righteousness will increase. Every time that you claim that, that age-old saying that you are the only Bible that some people will ever read, there's one of two reactions. Either the light that you reflect before others is accepted and it causes a conviction within them, or they can't stand it and they want to fight against it. You cannot... Come before the Word of God and not be challenged by it. There's only one of two responses. You can dig your heels in and fight it, or you can be convicted by it and let the Holy Spirit do His work in your life. But you can't ignore it. 
you can't ignore the presence of God. Some other truths that we can get from the Scripture. Number one, the souls of those that lost their lives for the sake of the Gospel claimed the promise that Christ gave when He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They are in the presence of God. I want you to also notice that they are conscious. There is no such thing as soul sleep. They are aware of their condition before the throne of God. And they are also made aware, as we are reading here, by God, of the condition of others. So what they're crying out for in this passage is for Christ to fulfill His duty as their goel. Now if you'll remember from, from our look at the book of Ruth, Goel has two different meanings. It doesn't simply mean kinsman redeemer in the fact of the Leverite marriage where Boaz was called out to become Ruth's husband and he also redeemed the property of Naomi's late husband for her. But he also has this potential responsibility. A Goel of a person's family had to act as the kinsman redeemer, meaning that, that they were also the avenger of blood. That if somebody was killed as a part of that person's family, it was their job, the kinsman, the Goel's job, to seek justice for the slain. That's why there were cities of refuge in ancient Israel that we talked about back during our Torah study. If somebody was uh, guilty of an accidental death, what we might refer to as manslaughter, they could run to a city of refuge in order to escape their Goel. So it was their duty to avenge the blood of the fallen. It was their, uh, also their, it was their duty to ransom and to gather money from the family to ransom someone who was so indebted that they had to sell themselves into slavery. Remember, slavery in ancient Israel was not a reflection of the slavery of Rome, nor a reflection of the slavery, ironically, of the United States, which these scriptures were tried to use to justify. It was more akin to what we would consider indentured servitude. If someone was in arrears in their financial situation to a certain point, that they had no choice but to become a, a, um, an indentured servant to the family that they owed money to. However, as a Jew in that condition, well, a couple of things to keep in mind. Number one is that they could not be held past the year of Jubilee at which point all slaves were let go and let free. That certainly makes it different from both the Roman and the American version. Secondly, unless they willingly submitted themselves as a lifelong servant, which there was a ceremony for that, if they were treated well by that family, and again, this was, this was something that was judged by the people that sat at the town gates, then when it was time for their indenture to end, they were also set up with all life's needs. That's where we got the old phrase, 40 acres and a mule in the United States. That's where that came from, that reflection of once their servitude was ended, they were given everything that they needed to get their lives started up again. So that certainly makes things different. But it was his job, the Avengers' job, the Goel's job, if someone was forced into slavery because of a debt, and I want you to hear the prophetic echo in these words. If you had a debt you could not pay, it was the Redeemer's job to go around in your family to collect enough money to pay off your debt with your behest to settle that debt and to set you free. 
So let's take a look at those again. Number one, it was his job to redeem property. Number two, it was his job to avenge the fallen. And number three, it was his job to set the captive free. Sound like anybody you know? That's why I want you to concentrate, to, to think about the book of Ruth because of so much of the spiritual truth that is located in that little book. Uh, okay, I think we already covered this, so let's move on. Verse 12. Then I saw him open the sixth seal, and a violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned to black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars from heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree ripes, uh, drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. Now, the more literal translation here is out-of-season figs. Now, if you ever wonder why in the world Jesus curses a fig tree, one of the reasons that He did that was because there, there is a fig season, uh, but there is also times when the blossoms bloom early. And in Israel, those, the figs produced are considered something of a delicacy. So when he sees the signs that there are figs there, but there are no figs there, he gets agitated. Let's move on. So when these unripened figs are shaken by a high wind, they fall. And he's saying that the stars fall here. Now, does this mean meteors? Or does this mean, uh, in the prophetic language, the very angels of heaven being cast out? I wish I could say with some degree of certainty. Verse 14, and here's where it gets even crazier. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. So what does that mean? I wish I could tell you. There is a lot of conjecture over this. But I, I tell you, the more often I take a look at this, the more literal I become with it. I Because earthquakes, uh, seismos, this is the shaking in Greek. Uh, and I cannot find necessarily a symbolic representation for it that meshes with everything else. Except the time in Scripture, like there are cases where earthquakes and, and the sun being darkened occur together. In fact, you find that in, uh, in Joel. Uh, those in Joel 2, um, 2 through 10 and 30 and 31, if it's, that's the section that should be underlined in your notes. I'm not sure why the underline didn't transfer here. But the prophet actually brings those two kinds of natural occurrences in the same light again in the Old Testament. So it sounds an awful lot like this isn't a symbolic occurrence, but this does mean an actual shaking of the ground and the sun is put out, and its light is hidden from the earth. And I also want you to note that this is the first time of three that an earthquake is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Also, it mentions that the moon is turned to blood. And that also occurs uh, multiple places in Scripture. The stars falling to the earth, we already talked a little bit about that when the sky splitting apart. That's also referred to in the Old Testament. And there's actual shifting of mountains and islands. That's also in the book of Jeremiah. So we're talking about a total upheaval where 
where nature itself has come under judgment. Now, ordinarily, I would take a look at this. If, if I didn't uh, pass through high school physics, I wouldn't be able to say this. I would think that this was symbolic. But we know this because of the work that had been done in physics in the last part of the 20th century into the 21st century. Space is not an empty vacuum. Space does have dimensionality. The fabric of space and the nature of time itself are interwoven. How do we know that? Because when an object is close to a high source of gravity, time is different with that person than another person outside of the pull of gravity. If you go into outer space, if you go into high Earth orbit, your clock or your chronometer on your spacecraft will eventually read something different than what's on the ground. So we know that space is not empty. We know that there is also a, a, a zero point of energy, even at zero degrees Kelvin, that happens in the vacuum of space. So what does all this mean? We even know that space can be bent. Gravity, for instance, it happens. There's an old experiment that I had to undergo when I was in high school where we stretch out a sheet, a literal sheet, and then our teacher brings a basketball and plops it in the middle of the sheet. And what happens? The sheet folds in around the basketball. And if you do it right, you can take a quarter and spin it around, and it will go into what looks like a free fall or an orbit around the basketball. That's how gravity works. If you take the fabric of space, three-dimensional instead of two-dimensional, and a heavy object is placed in space, then space folds itself around that object. That's what gravity is. When a black hole is formed, for instance, that's like dropping a bowling ball on the same sheet, given that the sheet has enough elasticity to fold in around itself and it forms a deep pocket. So space is not simply emptiness. Space is also referred to in the Bible as the second heaven. There are three basic heavens in Jewish thought. The first one is what we would call sky, the blue stuff. The second one is space, meaning the stars, the sun, moon, and the celestial elements. And the third, of course, is the supernatural where God dwells. So when Paul says that he was called up in the spirit, whether the body or out of the body, I know not, into the third heaven, that's what he means. First heaven meaning sky, the place of the birds. Second heaven, the, the sun, moon, and stars. Third heaven, the place of the throne of God. The Bible mentions of the fabric of space that it can be torn in Isaiah, that it can be shaken in Isaiah, Habakkuk, and in the book of Hebrews that the Apostle Peter actually says that it can be burned. Isaiah and the writer of Hebrews says that it will be rolled up like a scroll or like a mantle, like a piece of cloth. Revelation here, we just read that it can also be split apart. So, here's the crazy thing on top of that, just in case you thought I was finished. When all of this happens, when earthquakes erupt, when the, sun, when the sun goes black, when the moon, which we know doesn't illuminate itself, but the moon is a reflection because of sun-drenched and sun-bleached rock and dust, no longer has 
the bright light of the sun, it suddenly turns red in the sky. Incidentally, that's kind of a, a prophetic image of what we're called to do as Christians, is reflect the light of the sun. Just, I'll give you that one for free. When the, when the mountains shift and the islands are no longer where they once were charted, there are still people on the earth to react to it. So how do they react to it? The kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, every slave and free person hid in caves. Underline those four let uh, four words, because we're going to come back to that. The hidden caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They call him out. They know who this is. The church has already gone up, and yet the knowledge of the day of the Lord is still present upon the citizens of the earth. Because the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The answer, of course, is nobody. So their reaction is that they're still attempting to hide from God. But a couple of my commentators, they actually mentioned that uh, by, by the phrase, fall on us, they're not just asking to be hidden, they're saying that this kind of a death would be preferable to God's judgment. That's why I have the asterisk there, because that's still conjecturable. But they realize that to fight God is now futile. And they also realize the depravity of their spiritual condition. This is God's judgment upon us. And we cannot escape or withstand or refuse the judgment of God. Now here's something else I want to call to your attention really quickly. You can almost think of the book of Joshua as an outline for what would later become the book of Revelation. What do I mean by that? First off, Joshua's name as rendered in Hebrew is Yehoshua. The name that we call Jesus is a Greek and then anglicized word which originally was a diminutive from Yehoshua, Yeshua, which means Savior. Which is why in his triumphal entry, when they are shouting, Yeshua Hosanna, what they are literally saying is, Savior, save us. Second point I want to call your attention to is that in both books, a divine servant is about to reclaim a stolen land from a usurper. In the case of Joshua, it was seven, previously ten nations that had formed a coalition against the people of God. Three of them were put down because of Moses in the previous books in Torah. This coalition is led by a gentleman called Adonai, Adonai Zedek, which literally translates into the Lord of Righteousness. And let me try to break that down for you a little bit. The people of God are being persecuted or are being attacked by somebody who claims in his own right to be God. 
Somebody who is trying to place himself in the place of God. An anti-Christ. How's that for coincidence? Also in the book of Yehoshua, God has judged through fire and through hail. There are many miracles involving the sun. One that involves displacement of time itself because of the sun, the moon, and so on. The enemy commanders, this is what I wanted to refer back to you to, the enemy commanders actually find themselves hiding from the wrath of God in caves. And then, of course, there's the Battle of Jericho. A couple of very interesting things happen at the Battle of Jericho. First of all, Torah is actually suspended during the Battle of Jericho. I want you to pay attention to that. Just as Moses lifting up the servant in the desert was kind of a head-scratch moment, so is this. Why? Because at the Battle of Jericho, uh, many things happened that should not have happened in a strict interpretation of Torah, and yet it was what God had commanded them to do. First of all, during the Battle of Jericho, they were commanded to blast trumpets. That's also a common point. But the big blast of the trumpets fell on the day that they weren't supposed to do any work, on Sabbath. Secondly, the Levites are exempted legally from military activity. In fact, the only military uh, thing that they're supposed to do is guard the Ark of the Covenant, guard the tabernacle, and later on act as the Praetorian Guard of the kings of Israel. But here, the Ark of the Covenant, that's another big one, precedes the Israeli army with the, the Levites marching with them. So that's two question marks. Well, three, because the Ark of the Covenant was proceeding in the field of battle. There are seven episodes of trumpet blasts. And I want you to also notice who was the conqueror. That's a big one. Because in, in the beginning of the episode, as they're getting ready to attack Jericho, Joshua himself stands sentry. And he sees a warrior with sword drawn. And he goes to that warrior and challenges him as a sentinel. And he asks point blank, are you for us or for our enemies? And that soldier says, loosen thy shoes from off thy feet, for the ground on which thy stand is holy. And in that instant, Joshua knows exactly who he's talking to. God was the conqueror at Jericho. Did the Israelis bring the walls down? No. They were obedient. They put God's power on display, but it was God's hand that reduced those walls to rubble. God won the battle of Jericho. So, that having been said, a couple of things I'd like to ask you to do before next session. Incidentally, if you would, please go ahead. If you have questions up to this point, start thinking about them. For those of you watching, if you have anything that you've come up with or comments, Go ahead and use the live comment section so that we can get those addressed while we're in session. 
But I'd like for you to take a look at chapters 7 and 14. We're going to be discussing 7 in particular, but there's a lot of parallels between 7 and 14. Multiples of 7, isn't that interesting? Who were the 144,000? And what was their role? Incidentally, if you see the guys with the white shirts and the bicycles come up next to your door with the little name tags, and they, ask you, and they mention that they're part of the 144,000, ask them which tribe they're part of. But anyway, what have you heard about them? That leads me to the next question. What have you heard about them previously? What were you taught about them previously? Were you taught anything at all about them? But I want you to take your observations, both of what you're thinking of right now and what you had thought of from, from times past, and keep that journal going. Again, that's a gift to your children and a gift to yourself. And share your thoughts with your groups. Please maintain your groups together. Keep those fellowships going and keep each other accountable for staying in the Word of God. Because as we've proclaimed, um, the only way that we find both spiritual maturity and spiritual growth is in keeping in the Word of God together. Amen? So any questions or comments? So that was perfectly clear, understandable, and you know everything you need to know before we continue. Well, I'll, I will go ahead and say that because there are as many, in, in the passage of natural disasters, it's very tempting to think of it as symbology or allegory. But the fact that John mentions them is such rapid succession and the fact that all of them are under one single seal of the scroll, I think begs to differ. Now, if they had a symbolic meaning, you would think that each, each, each one of those would be a judgment in its own right. They should have their own seal. But they all happen together under the removal of one. As this judgment is poured out upon the earth. So the more I study them, especially given the quick succession and the fact of the wording in the Greek, the more I'm becoming convinced that it may be literal. Now, do giant balls of flaming hydrogen larger than our own sun start crashing down to the earth? I don't know. I will be willing to say that maybe that is something along the lines of a meteor storm that showers the earth or something like that, because that's what was mentioned in those times. When a giant light fell from the sky from above uh, where they could detect the line of the earth's atmosphere, yes, that's the stars falling. In fact, in today's culture, we even call a meteor storm a set of falling stars. When you wish upon a star. Uh, not that you should ever do that. That's actually a very paganistic type of thing. Well, but that's another sermon. Um, anything else before we go? Okay, if not then. Please start reading chapter 7. And we'll see you next Wednesday. But let's bow our hearts before we conclude. Heavenly Father, again we thank you for the majesty and the glory of your word. 
and the pains it took you to bring it to us. And we thank you for the lives and the faith of those on whose shoulders we stand. Those giants who went before us so that we might have your word, so that we might dig deeply and dine extravagantly at your table. Help us, Lord, to understand all the things that are written in as far as your will will allow us. Open not only our minds and our ears, but our hearts as well. Grant us the words so that for the generations that come after us, we may be as faithful as those we celebrate today. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.